Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that this month's podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Massimo is helping clinicians and care teams provide excellent care for their patients, both in the hospital and at home. With advanced monitoring parameters and powerful connectivity tools, Massimo offers a range of hospital and home-based solutions designed to support chronic care management, surge capacity efforts, and more. Whether inside or beyond the hospital, Massimo's remote monitoring solutions and hospital automation platform help providers seamlessly manage multiple patients simultaneously, providing data to help them identify when intervention may be required. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now let's hear what is in the July issue of the journal. Hello, and welcome to the July 2022 Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary and Podcast. This is Rich Branson. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice is a prospective observational study of high-frequency percussive ventilation and pediatric bronchiolitis. White and colleagues described the changes in gas exchange following transition from conventional invasive mechanical ventilation to high-frequency percussive ventilation in 41 infants. Most of the subjects in the trial qualified as having pediatric ARDS. Following transition to high-frequency percussive ventilation, subjects had improvements in ventilation despite a reduction in peak inspiratory pressure. Changes in oxygenation were mixed. They concluded that high-frequency percussive ventilation provided improved ventilation at reduced airway pressures and pediatric bronchiolitis. Dominic and others provide an accompanying editorial which suggests that high-frequency percussive ventilation appears to have a role in improving ventilation, but the inconsistent application of HFPV settings may limit the utility of the findings. They call for larger trials of high-frequency percussive ventilation with consistent application of the technique and predefined outcomes to provide evidence for a method that's often used but not completely understood. One of the issues with high-frequency percussive ventilation is comparing what was done before to during HFPV as monitors are different. The pressure recorded from a physiologic pressure transducer inside a modern mechanical ventilator used in the pediatric ICU may be different than the pressure readings from the VDR based on the use of either the physiologic monitor or the use of the manometer on the, on the machine itself. Roberts and others evaluated the tele-ICU clinical rotation for respiratory therapy students who were prevented from in-person clinical rotations as a consequence of COVID-19 restrictions. Um, This has been a major problem for medical training in general as using PPE and for people who are involved in direct patient care was a real concern early in the pandemic. Students spent two four-hour clinical rotations under the supervision of experienced respiratory therapists. Students performed remote patient ventilator assessments, including interpretation of ventilator waveforms, arterial blood gases, and chest radiographs. They then completed pre- and post-rotation surveys, assessing their confidence managing mechanical ventilation and their experience with telemedicine. Students expressed greater confidence in patient assessment, and students, as well as preceptors, had positive perceptions of the program. Sarah Varicogis provides an accompanying editorial and says that the study demonstrates that a tele-ICU rotation is feasible and beneficial. However, she cautions that the interactive and highly psychomotor nature 
of respiratory therapy practice make it unlikely that tele-ICU clinical education could replace hands-on ICU clinical rotations. This is an important issue as we move forward as it does provide students some experience with observation of ventilator waveforms, but issues related to privacy and being able to actually see the patient and link patient condition to what they see on the ventilator may be very difficult. Tolson and others demonstrate the impact of filters placed in the circuit for non-invasive ventilators to reduce environmental contamination. In this bench study, the addition of filters at various circuit positions altered trigger sensitivity and impacted delivered and estimated tidal volume. This paper concludes that modifications to ventilator circuits with the best of intentions may negatively alter performance. This has been an important aspect we've touched on several times during the pandemic, that just because we can modify a ventilator or a ventilator circuit doesn't mean that it doesn't have consequences that we're not sure of, and these should be tested in the laboratory before being applied to patients. Jossie and colleagues surveyed the perceptions of subjects with respiratory disease using pulse oximeters at home. 30 subjects completed a structured survey. They found that the majority of subjects reported that using a pulse oximeter at home was helpful in judging their physical limitations, providing reassurance and confidence in their disease management. We should consider this study in the light of the recent paper in the New England Journal that showed that patients with COVID-19 monitoring at home with or without pulse oximetry returned to the hospital at the same time with symptoms, showing no particular advantage of having a pulse oximeter at home in these subjects, that symptom symptomology was enough to have the patient seek additional medical treatment. Tan et al. performed a bench study of aerosol delivery using non-invasive ventilation in single and dual limb circuits and a mesh nebulizer with and without humidification. Aerosol deposition was measured by collecting drug on a filter between the test lung and patient model. They found that during non-invasive ventilation, aerosol delivery was best when the mesh nebulizer was placed between a non-vented mask and 15 centimeters from the exhalation port in the single limb circuit or 15 centimeters from the Y piece in the dual limb circuit. They also noted that humidification had little effect on aerosol delivery and that aerosol delivery was the poorest in a single limb circuit with a vented mask. This makes sense if you think about it. The gas is allowed to escape out the vent in the, in the mask and aerosol isn't delivered. Alquatani and co-workers evaluated the impact of mental health on the use of e-cigarettes in subjects with chronic lung disease. Using data from the 2018 Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, they explored whether the number of bad mental health days in the past 30 days explained the association be between chronic lung disease and e-cigarette use, and if respiratory symptoms moderated the association be between chronic lung disease and e-cigarette use. They concluded that e-cigarette use may be due to poor mental health in subjects with chronic lung disease. Decavale et al. evaluated the impact of dyspnea measured using a self-reported respiratory discomfort and the five-item intensive care respiratory distress observation scale at ICU admission and on mortality. Dyspnea was assessed dichotomously, as in yes or no, did, did the patient have dyspnea or not, with a visual analog scale and the intensive respiratory care observation scale was also calculated. Dyspnea was reported in over half the subjects and the respiratory distress observation scale was higher in those patients with dyspnea. They concluded that the score, an observational correlate of dyspnea, but not dyspnea alone, was associated with higher mortality in ICU subjects. The issue of dyspnea and its relationship to gas exchange, pain, anxiety, and other parameters makes it a, a very useful 
symptom for us to uh, evaluate, but not very prognostic. Tan and others describe a quality improvement project to improve implementation of a respiratory therapist-led screening of pediatric mechanically ventilated subjects for the extubation readiness test. They developed an extubation readiness test and verified at 80% adherence. They measured extubation failure within 48 hours and found a reduction in extubation failures and a reduction in the use of NIV. The duration of mechanical ventilation was unchanged, but ICU length of stay was reduced. They concluded extubation readiness test protocol improved outcomes in pediatric subjects on mechanical ventilation. Conjadal retrospectively reviewed a pulmonary function database and evaluated radiologic findings associated with isolated elevations in residual volume. They matched subjects with elevated RV with subjects who had a normal RV. They found that subjects with elevated RV were more likely to have smoked and had a maximum voluntary ventilation less than 30 times the FEV1. Asthma and non-tuberculosis mycobacterial infections were common in the elevated RV subjects. They concluded that an elevated RV is associated with airway-centered pulmonary disease. Centorino and others performed a bench study of oscillation transmission in five neonatal ventilators. Using lung models simulating normal, restrictive, and res mixed respiratory mechanics, they measured oscillations with a pressure transducer validated for high-frequency oscillation, and the oscillatory pressure ratio was calculated to estimate the oscillation transmission. They concluded that oscillation transmission was more dependent on the device model itself than on the mechanical lung conditions. So in, in this case, with high-frequency ventilation, the piece of equipment that you, that you use matters. Liu and Chatburn performed a bench study to evaluate the impact of inspiratory effort on circuit compensation in volume-targeted modes. They set a ventilator in volume and adaptive pressure targeting and varied the maximal inspiratory pressure, simulating less and more aggressive efforts um, by a patient, in this case using a test lung. In both breath types, the tidal volume fell as inspiratory effort was increased. They concluded that circumcompensation corrects the delivered tidal volume for volume lost in the patient's circuit and that that compensation volume decreased as simulated inspiratory effort increased. This makes sense if you think about it because when the patient pulls at the same time the ventilator is delivering the pressure, the maximum PIP is reduced overall and therefore the amount of compensation would be reduced. Hunt and others compared venous blood gases to arterial blood gases in critically ill subjects to ascertain if venous blood gases could substitute for ABGs. They compared 292 sets of blood gases from 82 subjects admitted to their ICU. Interclass correlation coefficient and Bland-Altman limits of agreement were obtained. Bland-Altman plots showed clinically unacceptable limits of agreement between all parameters. The interclass correlation coefficient was improved in a subset of blood gases where the mixed venous oxygen saturation was greater than 70%. They suggest that a venous blood gas could possibly substitute for an arterial blood gas following restoration of tissue perfusion. Um, this is a common practice in the emergency department where venous blood is easier, easier to come by, but I think in patients who have hypoxemia, um, an arterial blood gas remains the standard of care. Kotak and colleagues evaluated radiographic abnormalities in COVID-19 subjects using the radiographic assessment of lung edema score over six months. They assessed the association of baseline and longitudinal evolution of radiographic edema with the severity of hypoxemia and clinical outcomes. They found that in adult subjects presenting to the emergency department with COVID-19, the RAIL score closely followed clinical deterioration and could be used for triage 
or prognostication in patients with worsening radiographic edema. Tang and others provide a systematic review of non-invasive ventilation comparing neurally adjusted ventilatory assist and pressure support ventilation. Relying on data from 15 studies, they concluded that NAVA improves patient ventilator interaction compared to pressure support, but that important outcomes, including duration of mechanical ventilation, were lacking. Denise Willis provides a Cochrane quarter comparing airway clearance methods in cystic fibrosis. Airway clearance, of course, is an important technique in cystic fibrosis, which includes a variety of maneuvers and devices that have variable effectiveness. We thank you for listening to the Respiratory Care Podcast and look forward to interacting with you in the journal. We invite you to join the journal online as well as to look at our YouTube channel, which includes a variety of author interviews and videos. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.